0: Hi, I'm Elise Lunan, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Craig Malkin. Before we get to our conversation, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Kettle One Botanical, who helped make today's episode possible. The Goop team loves a good bar cart. We sell a beautiful one on the site, custom built by designer Chris Earle. And if you've come to one of our pop-ups or in Goop Health, you might have sampled some of the custom cocktails that go along with it which are often made with Kettle One Botanical. Kettle One Botanical, for the uninitiated, is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no sugar and no carbs and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. You can order your own Kettle One Botanical at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y. Don't
1: hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves.
0: When people stop
1: believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things.
0: I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers. here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Craig Malkin is a clinical psychologist at Harvard Medical School and the author of Rethinking Narcissism. Today, Dr. Malkin and I talk about what narcissism actually means and that there's actually something called healthy narcissism. Malkin shares the origin story of narcissism, the different types that we all experience, and what something called echoism means. He explains how the combination of genetics and parenting styles may result in extreme narcissism and shares ways to potentially avoid this. Malcolm reminds us that fear is the fuel that sustains these unhealthy patterns. He explains that all of these traits are really just survival mechanisms, and today, we'll begin to understand how to unlearn them. We even have a mini-therapy session that addresses some of my own survival mechanisms.
1: If you're thinking about if there are problems, I always tell people that your first question shouldn't be, is this person narcissistic, or what is the problem, it's, am I safe?
0: I'll let Craig Malkin take it from here. So thank you for being here. And I loved your book, in part because I feel like everyone. I've been quietly obsessed with narcissism and pathologizing people I know, etc., for many years, even before our current president. But your perspective on it is much, I thought it was very clarifying and... As a parent, I found it really helpful to sort of explore what healthy narcissism is. And so before we start, this is, I feel like, the thesis of the book, but that slightly slightly outsized ego has its benefits. In fact, numerous studies have found that people who see themselves as better than average are happier, more sociable, and often more physically healthy than their humbler peers. The swagger in their step is associated with a host of positive qualities, including creativity, leadership, and high self-esteem which can propel success at work. Their rosy self-image imbues them with confidence and helps them endure hardship even after devastating failure or horrific loss. So if that's the goal, sort of that healthy narcissism Mm. center, I'm excited for you to take us through the implications of being on the low end of that and then obviously the high end, which is what we would identify as narcissistic behavior.
1: Me too. I love talking about it. I love helping people with it.
0: Because <laughs> it's such a dirty word. And I think for so many, I mean, I know that the research suggests that it's, well, there are more extreme narcissists who are men, right?
1: Correct. It's it's twice as many men as yeah. women.
0: But even so, I think, and women probably tend toward the lower, we're so scared for, to be perceived as as braggarts that... I think for women and for for those of us who are raising girls it's like how do we how do you coach people to that that healthy point
1: Absolutely it's such an important question and I would add here it's sort of interesting because we have a bunch of research looking at echoism mm-hmm. and that's that low end of mm-hmm. a lack of healthy narcissism we can talk about that and initially we haven't found a gender difference but I do do suspect just because of the way girls and women are socialized that it's not okay to be outward and, mm-hmm. and to dream big and to be aggressive that it might be dampened yeah. in them.
0: My guess is that maybe for the zeros, the people who are truly sort of traumatized and potentially had the narcissistic parents who made them feel like they were nothing – that might be evenly split. But when you get into the ones, twos, and threes, um, my guess would it would be primarily women. I
1: think so too. Yeah. I mean, really, the, the jury's still out because we are still collecting data. My group is the only research team that's actually defined this idea of a lack of healthy narcissism, which I it turns out I didn't coin the term echoism. I popularized it. but it comes from the myth of narcissus and echo. Narcissus was the Greek youth who fell in love with his reflection. He was cursed by the gods because of his vanity and indifference. And Echo is the wood nymph that fell in love with Narcissus. Mm -hmm. And she was cursed to live life without a voice of her own. Mm. And like Echo, echoists live life by the rule, the less room I take up, the better. They are afraid of being a burden. And in our research, what we found is that the core defining feature was a fear of seeming narcissistic in any way. Yeah, And so it makes sense when you hear that, that when people are socialized, again, girls and women are socialized, to clamp down on themselves, that they might tip more in that direction.
0: Yeah, it's so – it feels so – Resonant, And, you know, I think so many women, there's this fear. There's a fear of being seen. And then there is that, like, I don't want to appear full of myself. Yes. When we need more women to be full of themselves, to give permission to other women to be full of themselves. Yeah. So it definitely feels gendered. Yeah.
1: And full of themselves in the healthy way. Yeah. Really what we're talking about is... A pervasive, universal experience of pride. I mean, we have in we have research, cross cultural research, that shows that you can see displays of pride in an early age and in adulthood, and we all recognize what that looks like. It's really wired into us because it's part of feeling uh, happy and celebrating with the group. It's mm-hmm. really not just individual. It's part of what keeps us connected to people. And what happens is people end up conflating pride with arrogance.
0: Right. Exactly. And,
1: and, they, and they punish or they shame moments of pride, particularly in, in girls, but also it happens in, in boys. And I talk about that at length in Rethinking Narcissism, how, how that plays out. But when those normal feelings of pride are shamed, people cut them out They cut off from them and they learn to connect by leaving it out
0: entirely.
1: There's a recipe for echoism right there.
0: It's so interesting too, you know, the research that supports that we all feel special and we all are, right? But that we all feel a little bit more special than the people around us. It's a natural inclination. And and as you, I think, really artfully point out, it's the genesis for progress and moving society forward. As generations come up, if they don't feel empowered by themselves to change the world or make a difference or do things differently, then where would we be?
1: Exactly. It's, it's, a, it's a very important trait to nurture. I hope we get some time to talk about the parenting aspect yeah. of it. But that let's define it. Mm-hmm. What, is, what we're talking about is also in the research called self-enhancement. And I've had some people express concerns, really the lay public express concerns, because this is well known in the field of psychology and mental health research. These, uh, at least some of these ideas, but healthy narcissism is not simply self-esteem. It's not simply self-confidence. It is an over, slightly overly positive view of self, mm. and sometimes other in world. Think of it like rose-colored. Glasses. It's a mistake to equate it with self-esteem because narcissism is only a little bit related to self-esteem. We know that because extreme narcissists may or may not have high self-esteem. The way the the numbers play out, it doesn't line up. That correlation is not super strong precisely because some narcissists feel terrible about themselves. And we can talk about that too. But I just want to make that really clear. This is what we're talking about, a self-enhancement that is... When people who are happy and healthy cross-culturally around the world are asked to compare themselves on a number of features, say, warmth, intelligence, hostility, uh, they view themselves as not average, but as exceptional and unique, to Mm -hmm. quote University of Washington researcher Jonathan Brown. And that is healthy narcissism. Mm -hmm. And when we have that little bit of self-enhancement, that's what gives us the protection against, I would say, adversity in the world and even loss.
0: Mm-hmm. And I want to talk about parenting and I want to talk about reparenting because, as you sort of point out within the book, this is a, s- a spectrum. You know, there is the, the a personality disorder on one extreme, which no one should be diagnosing each other with. But within that, the realm of narcissism, people can shift and move themselves towards the center. And so let's get to that. But first, let's talk about extreme narcissism and its problems and how you identify it and protect yourself against it.
1: Absolutely. So let's start with defining narcissism. We've got to go back a little bit. When most people think of narcissism or narcissists, the words they think of vain, preening, primping, boastful, braggarts. That's what I call the narcissist we all know and loathe. Mm -hmm. But the reality is not all narcissists care about looks or fame or money. So it's really a caricature, that image. Mm -hmm. And if we get too hung up on it, we lose sight of features that have nothing to do with vanity or greed. So instead, because we've already spoken about what healthy narcissism is, imagine a line, and I go over this in Rethinking Narcissism. I also talk about this a lot in my YouTube channel, which is imaginatively named Dr. Craig Malkin. (laughs) So think of a line from zero to 10. Zero, we have a failure to Mm self-enhance, where we find echoism. In the center, we find healthy narcissism at five, and at 10... Really, let's say from 7 to 10 is where we find extreme narcissism. So you think of narcissism as the drive to feel special, exceptional or unique, to stand out from the other 7 billion people on the planet. Think of narcissists as people who score well above average on that universal human trait, on self-report measures in particular. Mm. They may or may not be disordered. And people with narcissistic personality disorder are so addicted to that experience of soothing themselves with feeling exceptional or special that they that they tip into disorder. What does that look like? The the core of pathological narcissism, when you think of somebody who's so addicted to feeling special to lie, steal, cheat, do whatever it takes in order to feel that way, including hurt other people, the core is what I call triple E. And I want to lay this out for everybody who's listening because it does get confusing once we start talking about the different types of narcissism. Again, there's that caricature. Who's a good example? I would say a good example would be Steve Jobs, by all accounts, had narcissistic personality disorder. You think of Bernie Madoff who swindled people and laughed from prison about how long it took them to catch him. So that's that familiar image. But there are other types we need to talk about. But what they all have in common is that they so cling to feeling special, that they start to demonstrate triple E, Mm -hmm. which is entitlement, acting as if the world and other people should bend to their will. Exploitation, which is doing whatever it takes to feel special, no matter what the cost to other people, including hurting them, and empathy impairments that is getting so caught up in that need to feel special or exceptional. They lose sight of the needs and feelings of other people. Triple E has been found repeatedly in the research to correlate to just about every bad thing that you see with narcissistic personalities or sort of like workplace uh, you know, messing things up in the workplace, I forget mm-hmm. what the technical term is right now, but it's messing things up in the workplace, bullying, aggression, threatening people when their ego feels threatened,
0: mm-hmm.
1: all relates to triple E.
0: And then on the, just below that, in the sevens, eights, you, there is still some dysfunction, but typically some of those people can be moved down the spectrum by reminding them of their relationships?
1: Absolutely. This is what I call subtle narcissism. Mm-hmm. These are people who, uh, one easy way to think about it is the difference between a habit versus a powerful addiction mm-hmm. when the behavior is habitual. So these are people who habitually lean on feeling exceptional or unique instead of And again, hopefully we can take a deep dive into this, turning to mutual care and connection, Mm -hmm. something called attachment security. That is when you're sad, scared, lonely, blue, feeling like you can turn to one special person or persons and know that they'll be there for you Mm -hmm. when push comes to shove, no matter what. That's attachment security. And instead of doing that, uh, people who are subtle narcissists don't really trust that and they're a little fearful of it. So one good distinction is they, they end up, instead of turning to people in that mutual way, soothing themselves from time to time. And what you see is what I call the entitlement surge. So typically somebody at seven or eight, they're humming along in life, maybe they've got a pretty caretaking partner, so they don't really have to think about and what they're asking for, or what they're expecting, but then something happens at work and they're, maybe their job is threatened, And suddenly you see a spike where, why aren't you doing the dishes? And why isn't the place clean? And why hasn't this happened? As if they're somehow owed these kinds Mm -hmm. of things. That's the entitlement surge. It surprises people because people in subtle narcissism range can be quite self-aware. They can have some insight. They know that they can get a little, get a big head or get too preoccupied with themselves, and then suddenly that person is gone and you're dealing with a, with someone who seems like a tyrant. Mm-hmm. That's really the hallmark of it. They surge from habit to addiction. Now they're so scared, they don't really feel like they have any choice but to keep inflating their sense of importance or specialness.
0: And at its whole, there's a lot of emptiness and profound lack of self-esteem.
1: Profound lack of authentic self-esteem No matter which narcissism we're talking about, because even the more brash, outgoing narcissism, if, for example, you hook people who show that it's also called extroverted narcissism or overt narcissism, that loud narcissism, if you hook people like that up to a lie detector test, and ask them how they feel about themselves, suddenly they don't report feeling that great. Mm-hmm. They don't feel like they have great self-esteem when when there's a danger of their being caught in it not matching, say, indirect measures of their self-esteem.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about sort of that sec- let's talk about secure attachment yeah. and then also where attachment goes wrong for people in childhood in the creation of these disorders on both ends of the spectrum.
1: Absolutely. So again, just a reminder to everybody out there, secure attachment. When you're sad, scared, lonely, when you feel deep trust that you can turn to somebody and share and feel supported and connected in those feelings, that's attachment security. If something goes wrong and people are made to feel like that's not possible, then they learn to and this is really the way I think about it. They leave feelings out and, and ways of expressing themselves out. This is what we all do to survive the environments where we adapt to over and over again in our family and our culture. We sort of bend ourselves out of shape. Mm-hmm. We lop off whole areas of feeling, and we lop off ways of expressing ourselves in order to stay connected and survive those environments. And people who are insecurely attached because they don't trust that they can turn to people in that way. They learn these ways to avoid it,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to avoid moments of saying, I'm sad, I'm scared. So people who are extremely narcissistic, as I've already said, they, they – and let me give a childhood example. Mm-hmm. We know with extreme narcissism that there is a genetic component. Psychologist named Phoebe Kramer did one of the few longitudinal studies, which is amazing, over the course of 21 years – And she determined that there are early precursors to unhealthy narcissism like being melodramatic, being aggressive, and bullying, always wanting to be the center of attention that show up in in imperious little three- and Mm four-year-olds. And she tracked them over time and not surprisingly as adults, they turned out to show more of this unhealthy narcissism except if they received the kind of parenting – That's called authoritative. These are parents who, when they're sad, you know, our tabby cat died, you know, Samantha died, and I'm sad about that, sweetheart. How are you feeling? When they check in with their kids, when they're angry, when they're scared, when they model feeling, and they also direct their kids where they need to be directed. So they have to take other people into account. Mm -hmm. So that combination of warmth and direction or control is really what authoritative parenting is. That f- over and over is associated with attachment security. Mm. And those kids in Phoebe Kramer's study who showed those early signs of unhealthy narcissism, they grew up to be healthier. They did not develop unhealthy narcissism in adulthood. It's as if that attachment security protected them from going off the rails.
0: And the modeling of what sort of healthy encounters look like.
1: Exactly.
0: And there's a difference in your in your book, you're very clear. There's authoritarian parenting, which is can have very deleterious effects, and then authoritative. And then there's the in-between, which is completely, way too permissive. Yes. So as we're thinking about our kids, and as we're thinking about ourselves as children, and there's a fun, everyone likes to self-assess, so there's a really fun quiz in your book. <laughs> How do we think about it for our So authoritative parenting, which I think sounds like the right way forward. And then when you think about it in the context of reparenting yourself, like what, what do you do?
1: Such a great question. And I've given it a lot of thought, as you can probably tell. I think the easiest way into this always, I have to describe what I do. Yeah. So for example, when I'm in the room with somebody who's struggling with echoism, let's use that as an example. Years ago, I used to handle it a little bit differently. I say saw I saw this woman, this young woman, and she'd grown up in an extremely religious family, and then she left the church behind. Mm-hmm. And when she came to me, she was struggling with intense anxiety—I'd say paralyzing anxiety and depression—worried that every step she took might be wrong, and and, had the, and how she might hurt people she cares about. And she's being too selfish, and she's being and she's guilty about this thing that she did. And I I thought about her a lot. This is what I do with clients anyway. I would spend hours, I spend hours still often thinking about people's stories Mm -hmm. and how it all fits together and how their relational and emotional environment shaped them and misshaped them to create symptoms. And then I'd say something, like I said to this woman, you've traded the God of Abraham for the God of perfection. Mm. You're still living by the rules of God. You've just switched gods. I'd love to help you live under kinder, gentler rules than the ones that you learned. And that would be helpful. But t- putting that into practice and making use of it was sort of slow going. And And flash forward now, and I'm more of what's called an experiential therapist. And this is the direct answer to your question. I need to help people have an experience. It's deeply felt experiences that created these survival strategies and that's really what they are Mm -hmm. and it takes a deeply felt experience to change them so now if i saw that woman i would i would share that understanding that she'd probably find helpful but then i'd also say take take me into a scene a memory where that little girl learned that if she took one false step or if she was a little selfish her whole world would fall apart Mm. how did she learn that and I call this getting on the other side of the experience. And once the person is in that, I say, how do you as an adult feel towards that little girl? And now things start to shift because mm. very often I'm sad. I'm angry. She never should have felt that way. Can you let her know? And then once the person is modeling different spots, now, look, we've replaced in order to survive and have relationships, you have to be on and perfect and perfectly unselfish all the time. Now we've replaced it with, oh, I'd tell that girl, it's okay, everybody's selfish sometimes. Mm -hmm. What are you feeling inside? And once that experience happens, now, you know, see what's happening is now we're creating attachment security. And instead of it just being a thought in the head, like I I need to stop living this way. Now this person is feeling what it's like to be on the receiving end, not of messages of you've got to do this the right way all the time or you're going to lose love and you're going to lose connection. But I'm going to help you with this. Mm -hmm. You're not alone. That is getting the neural circuitry firing on attachment security. Mm -hmm. And that is a change people then hold on to. Repeat that. 10, 15, 20 times in my office and people start to change.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's so this is a common conversation amongst my friends where we all we all exhibit the same the same behavior of if my friend called me and said, Oh, I have the flu and like my husband's out of town, I'd be like, i I'm coming, like with soup. Or if I can't come, it's it's coming, you know, from postmates. But yet, like the idea of asking for that or an expectation of that is so hard. Mm. And, you know, I think that, I think a lot of women carry it. It's so hard to say what you need or to ask for help. You know, I have this conversation with my husband all the time. Cause he's like, let me help you. God damn it. Like, it's really frustrating yeah. <laughs> to be married to you. And I am like, can I do that? Will you let me do that? And I rebuff. It's, it's mortifying to me mm. to ask for help.
1: So the, the, that's exactly the kind of struggle. And here's the, somewhere you learned. If I was working with you, I'd take you back. Like, where did you learn yeah. that? That's how that that it wasn't okay to expect or ask that in order to have relationships and sustain mm-hmm. them, you have to leave that out. But another way to do it is pe- people often find it really helpful. This is shifting perspective. If you had a friend, mm-hmm. someone you really cared about who was having so much trouble just asking for more when they really need more and was struggling with feeling like it was somehow selfish or too much without giving advice and without trying to solve the problem, how would you help them?
0: Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah, no, I think, too, that's that propensity that we have. When sometimes you're like, I just need to express, and I'm very guilty of this, too. It's like we all immediately jump into... I'm going to tell you what to do. And I'm going to, and in the guise of being helpful, of course, but instead of just letting someone express. Feel. And feel. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Very often the cure is a not feeling alone. Yeah. Undoing the aloneness.
0: We'll get back to Craig Malkin in just a second. Detox Month is all wrapped up at Goop, but I'm still trying to keep things relatively clean, and our food team is always looking for the highest quality ingredients in every season to work within the kitchen, and that includes the bar cart. The team has developed a number of cocktails using Kettle One Botanical, which is vodka distilled with real botanicals and made with non-GMO grain. There's no carbs and no sugar and no artificial sweeteners or flavors. There are three Kettle One Botanical varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. And they all make for really fresh-tasting cocktails. If you're looking for inspiration, see the Goop recipes for Sumac Salty Dog or the Peach and Flowers. Or just grab some Fever Tree Soda and mix a botanical spritz. You can order Kettle One Botanical on drizzly.com to try it out yourself. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com. At Goop, part of our mission revolves around creating more open conversations about female sex and pleasure. When it comes to sex and desire, we believe in pushing the boundaries and exploring our curiosities in a healthy and positive way. We even devoted a whole episode on our Netflix show, The Goop Lab, to the subject. Oh, and our recent story on vibrators on the Goop site has been getting a lot of buzz. Literally. We believe in women exploring their own sexual desires, and similarly, Dame Products believes in self-exploration and closing the pleasure gap. Dame is a woman-founded company making toys for sex. Their founder, Alexandra Fine, is a sex educator and engineer that decided real humans are the best researchers when it comes to designing high-quality sex toys. Her hope is to encourage us to reach new heights when it comes to pleasure, either solo or with a partner. Their vibrators and accessories are made with medical-grade silicone, innovative design principles, and each of their products are developed and tested by real people with vulvas. And the best part, Dame offers hassle-free returns within 60 days of purchase. To check out their products and get 15% off your first order, visit dameproducts.com goop and use code goop15 at checkouts. That's d-a-m-e-products.com goop and use code goop15 to get 15% off your first order. Back to my chat with Craig Malkin. So within parenting, it's sort of taking your individual, those individual creatures who are so formed by the time they emerge, and then just being a mirror for them rather than projecting onto them. Is that what happens in the creation of a narcissistic child, like someone who maybe could have been in the center, but who has a parent who's narcissistic like where what what's happening there
1: There are typical pathways mm-hmm. for e- whether somebody has a genetic predisposition to become extremely narcissistic or not there are typical pathways I would say by and large no matter what form of narcissism we're talking about these are going to be kids who tend to be a little bit more aggressive mm. even if they're quiet they're going they're going to be a little bit more aggressive by nature because really what causes that is these are children who've grown up in a house where the loudest voice wins mm-hmm. it's in the most extreme it's it's killer p killed mm-hmm. i often think of this is so dated but there was a movie in the 80s called highlander with <laughs> <laughs> with sean connery and and another star i forget his name but he had an accent and he would always say they would have these clashes with sword fights and somebody's head would get cut off. It's not phallic at all. And, <laughs> and the winner would be the immortal who gets to go on and then battle somebody. And the line was, there can be only one. Hmm. And that's sort of the the experience. People who are extremely narcissistic have often grown up in a household where – One person dominates. Mm -hmm. Other people don't really get a voice and they don't get a say. And if you want to matter, you better do something that makes you stand out. Otherwise, no one's going to see you at all. Mm -hmm. So that's one typical pathway. Another way of thinking about it is these are kids who have had that experience of attachment insecurity. Their parents really aren't helping them feel like they can talk about when they're scared or sad or, or mm-hmm. lonely, and they really only relate to them when they're valedictorian. Yeah. Or when they've made some huge splash, written, a, written, written something for the newspaper. That's, and so that child learns to be a performance, not a person, in order to stay connected and survive.
0: It's interesting. I feel like I had almost the opposite experience in my childhood where my parents didn't really seem to notice when I achieved, which was also interesting. It's funny. And we have a Netflix show that's come out today. And I did talk to my dad about it. And my parents are lovely. But my mom, like, they haven't really mentioned it to me. Isn't that funny? <laughs>
1: no, that's terrible. I want to have a redo. Congratulations. <laughs> Right. This is what I would do that congratulate. That is fantastic. This is something to be shared, really.
0: Oh, so that funny. moment of
1: celebration. So what happened there <laughs> is precisely because it was left out of experience. It's left out of your relationship to yourself. Mm. There's an isomorphism, a direct relationship between how people respond to our experience growing up yeah. that shows us this is how you move through the world and this is how you stay close to people. Yeah. And what happens is over time, we make it our own. Yeah, I can't be proud. I can't be this excited. Look, there's no real response. Therefore, it must be bad. Not even necessarily articulating it fully, but that's the feeling. Yeah. So I want the corrective with you. That's uh, awesome. Congratulations. No, but as a
0: child, I mean, I think that my parent and I think that they did it with good intention mm-hmm. of of never not wanting me to have a swollen head. That was always the refrain in childhood. So there was, uh. But I think as an adult and what I've tried to work through is I I temper the good and the bad. So I'm like, oh, whatever happens, I'm like, oh, it could have been so much worse. Or, you know, I'm so lucky. It could have been so much worse. Or it's not that big of a deal. So it's the, like my own – I'm trying to recalibrate so I can actually celebrate and despair. Yeah.
1: yeah instead of – I don't know. That's a defense. That's a survival strategy. Yeah. Right? This is – I, I you, we learn precisely because we're social creatures.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We can't survive on our own. So growing up these experiences where we feel like we're losing our parents' presence or sometimes physically losing them or getting punishment from them in the case of abuse, mm. it imprints our nervous system with a sense, a, a life and death feeling. Mm-hmm. It's its the force. It's the It's the fuel of fear that keeps these patterns going. And a big part of what I help people do is update their nervous system response Mm. where they can fully, it's not enough to think it, right? You wanna, what will help you is to have the experience of it's finally safe, just to be open about this and share it, Mm. this excitement, this celebration. So with a client, I would say, you know, look at my face. What are you feeling from me? What's it like to see that? We want to make it a connection again, which is what it should have been. Mm. Pride is to be celebrated by the group and by the family. It's a way of moving closer to people. And mm. that idea of don't get a big head, that's conflating pride with arrogance. They are not the same.
0: Mm. Thank you.
1: You're welcome.
0: One thing that I thought was so interesting too, is when you talk about Narcissism and relationship, and particularly around dating, and people's when they're like, I just like bad boys, or I like bad girls, or they find it to be, you know, when they're involved with a narcissist, they find it to be so much more sexually exciting. And I thought the way that you, not to put you on the spot, because I know you wrote the book a few years ago, but the way that you picked that apart in terms of like what arousal is and why we have that reaction was fascinating.
1: It's still fascinating to me. I wrote, I started a book on this, that may have a dated title, but <laughs> originally it was called "Aiming Cupid's Arrow," mm. and now I, I forget what the what the working title was after that. But anyway, it brought the whole point was, we are settled into this idea that we just have a type and it's passive and we're sort of drawn to that, and we have no control over it. But the reality is without realizing we control our attraction all the time. Mm. And that's one of the things I was trying to outline briefly. It came from that book that I started. There's a vast body of research started by a researcher named Arthur Aaron, who incidentally his wife is Elaine Aaron, who developed the theory of highly sensitive people Mm. and all of the research around that. But, and... At the time he was falling deeply in love with her, he was curious what causes people to fall in love. So briefly, he did this experiment where he had a bunch of guys on a bridge meet an attractive female assistant 230 feet up in the air on a suspension bridge over crashing whitewater rapids. And it was it would sway back and forth. You'd feel like you'd fall off any second. and he, And he just had them meet that young woman and she'd ask some questions that seemingly unrelated and at the end just without realizing that this is where it was going he asked these men how attracted are you to her did the same thing with a group of men on solid ground Mm -hmm. and the men on the rickety bridge were more attracted to this so this was where he introduced this idea of arousal that our nervous system registers arousal as a sign of attraction It doesn't have to be positive. Mm. So very often what happens in these very volatile relationships with, say, Mm. extremely narcissistic partners is that we are feeling what I call insecure passion. Our need to get them back. The necessity of constantly keeping them in mind Mm -hmm. is precisely because this fear that we don't really know where we stand with them. It's like being on a rickety bridge. And so what I, what I wanted to introduce people to, and I, I do in that section of Rethinking Narcissism, is you own your own passions. Mm-hmm. Right? Very often, you're not responding in a way where you feel like you can move about freely and do what you want. And if you had these fun sexual experiences with the person that you're dating, you're not initiating them. Start. right? right? They're in you. I have this one line, what is it, very often we chase after bad boys and bad girls to reclaim our own disowned desire.
0: Yeah, I love that line, disowned desire. Yeah, yeah totally. And I thought that was so... So interesting. It was like that you were swept along. I think in the the woman that you were ex- exploring and her predilection for narcissistic men, and with that came great sex. Yeah. And trying to understand that attraction, and so it was essentially sort of like it's unsafe, and therefore it's titillating, and you become someone else with these people because it's not at your own will. So reclaim that desire mm-hmm. and initiate that with someone who's a safer. Match Exactly. And you'll create the same level of excitement.
1: Generate passion in a securely attached relationship. Yeah. You know, where it's okay for you to say, hey, I really hoped that we were going to get together. We had a date. I'm kind of sad that we didn't. And if a person can't handle hearing that and they don't allow you to express yourself in that normal way, I mean, we would never turn away our kids that we love if they mm-hmm. said something like that to us. This is the model throughout life. It's not just childhood. So if somebody can't handle hearing those small expressions of disappointment, we can't have a healthy relationship with them. Mm. I tell clients all the time, my job is not to help you adapt to unhealthy relationships and environments. It's to help you have the healthiest, best sense of self that you can and express yourself and the range the range of feelings that would come naturally regardless of what the environment is and what other people are doing.
0: And so on that note, because a, a fair amount of the book, and probably I'm assuming your practice, is people coming in who are in a relationship with the narcissist. I know you also do a lot of work with people who are tending towards extreme narcissism. But can you talk a little bit, whether it's with a colleague or a partner, about how you initiate, like just some tools that you have for creating that emotional language and the relationship? Expression to like bring them back if possible?
1: Absolutely. We have to start with the caveat, which is in any relationship, if you're thinking about if there are problems, I always tell people that your first question shouldn't be, Is this person narcissistic or what is the problem? It's, Am I safe? Mm-hmm. So I would never recommend any of these strategies with someone where you don't feel safe. And so you have to first consider what I call the three stop signs. The first is abuse, Mm -hmm. physical or emotional abuse. And that includes gaslighting, saying and doing things that make you feel, saying you're crazy, for example. There's something wrong with, that's gaslighting. Denial, the person can't admit they have a problem, they're not gonna change. Doesn't matter what the problem is. And then the third is psychopathy. This is a pattern of remorseless lies and manipulation. These are people who repeatedly lie to you, you catch them, and they don't really seem to show any guilt or remorse, and they continue to do it pretty compulsively. Mm -hmm. If you see those signs, you really want to get help leaving a relationship, get support, have an exit strategy if safety is an issue. Mm -hmm. But if you're dealing with somebody in the subtler range who is not uh, dangerously narcissistic, really the key is what I call empathy prompts. And I, and I don't want to go into it too much, but just suffice it to say this is based on couples therapy research of how we should be in relationships anyway right. at our best. So why not do them? And another line of research on reducing narcissism called communal activation. So an empathy prompt is... First, emphasize the importance of the relationship and the person to you. Mm-hmm. You lead with that because very, very often extremely narcissistic people aren't used to hearing that they are special to someone, mm-hmm. right? They, again, they feel more like a performance than a person. So to hear, so the first step is, you know, you're really important to me. I care about you so much. Say this is the case of a, a, a woman whose father is being critical and cold. Mm-hmm. You're important to me, Dad, you're one of the most important people in my life, which is why I feel so small and so worried I'm losing my father when you shoot down when you say everything that I come up with is wrong. Mm-hmm. and I just I end up feeling like I want my father back. So it's got these two components of emphasizing that the specialness of the relationship. And the more vulnerable feelings underneath. Mm -hmm. Our tendency is to either shut down or attack Mm -hmm. when we feel the connection is strained. But the problem is in close relationships, that doesn't repair things. And it's besides the point because the reason we're reacting is we're feeling unloved, we're feeling disconnected, we're feeling lonely. So if, for example, you pull away, you're not conveying that that you miss the person and that they matter to you. And if you attack, you're not conveying that you feel sad or you feel disconnected. Mm. So an empathy prompt is all about giving the person feedback. Hey, I care about you. Where'd you go?
0: Mm. I love that. Mm. Well, thank you for your work. I feel like it's it's so important just because it's, it's. I think, exactly that. We all want to say, I'm not a narcissist. I like don't want to be a narcissist, but the reality is we all exist on this spectrum, and there's a really healthy place to be, which is, what, like four to six, smack in the middle. So to all of us getting there, thank you. Absolutely.
1: And remember, this is the one thought I want the the one sentence I want ringing in people's ears is that the key to having a healthy dose of narcissism that healthy range of self-enhancement and having great relationships is being able to learn to uh, relate in a securely attached manner mm. it's being open about all those feelings including pride that we've been taught aren't okay or to shove down in some way and aren't a part of connection, but they are part of connection.
0: Thanks for listening to my conversation with Craig Malkin. For more, head to drcraigmalkin.com. That's C-R-A-I-G-M-A-L-K-I-N. And make sure to get a copy of his book, Rethinking Narcissism. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.